This is Alex Goldberg, recording from our studio in San Francisco. This is CJ Chemjobber, recording from our headquarters in Shell, Wyoming. We decided to make another episode of The Periodic Bagel. Today we're interviewing Stuart Cantrill, the editor-in-chief of Nature Chemistry and noted gen expert. We're going to hear Stu's thoughts on the state of scientific publishing, his favorite chemistry paper of 2019. We'll be subjecting him to our own version of Kanye or Cronin. Without further ado, we're going to dive right in with our interview. So you know that we're we asked some pretty deep and philosophical questions here at the Periodic Bagel. And so, Stu, we're wondering, um, would you rather fight 1,000 duck-sized Boris Johnsons or one Boris Johnson-sized duck? <laughs> um, I, I think I'd probably just like to fight Boris Johnson, really. <laughs> yeah, oh dear, it's, it's all just a bit of a mess. Stu, have you ever been in a physical fight, like past the age of 12? That's a very good question. I don't. I don't believe I have. I'm. I'm. I'm a, <laughs> uh, well, if I have, I don't remember it. Um, no, I don't think I've actually ever been involved in an actual physical fight. But you'd make an exception for Boris. <laughs> I think anyone would probably make an exception for Boris. Fair enough. What are like the interesting, fun, gossipy things that you get to observe as a uh, as a publisher at a leading journal in chemistry? You, you mean the ones I can tell you about without getting fired? Yes. <laughs> or, okay. or the ones that you can't tell us about without getting fired. <laughs> um, well, a lot of people recommend particular referees to evaluate their papers. They, they suggest who they think would be an appropriate referee. And it's certainly not the case all the time, but I think a lot of the time people are suggesting their friends. Mm. Or... A better way of putting it is the people who they think are their friends. They are the conference drinking buddies, the people who will sit around in the bar after a day at a conference. And they're the people who will say, oh, yeah, that was a great talk. This this work is brilliant. It's great. And they're not really your true friends. They're your drinking friends. Because if, if they really did think that yeah, there, there's a difference, right? Right. There is. So they're just they're, they're just saying. They're saying what you want to hear. Now, if they were their, your true friends, they'd probably go, oh, yeah, you know, that that thing you talked about on slide three, that's that's rubbish. It's never going to work. And yeah, that whole concept, I just don't see it working. But no, they, they can't say that because they're just your drinking buddies. However, you've suggested them as a referee in your paper. And so when they do get sent your paper to review, the safety valve just goes and hmm. boy, do they unload. Let's say constructively critical, but really quite critical. Some of the most damning reports I've seen are from suggested referees. So it happens like every year or once every other year with the Nobel Prize, especially when it's fundamental science, that somebody will pull out this rejection letter from a prominent journal and and wave it around. I react to it as... This is a funny joke, but I, I don't see it as any particular critique of capital T, capital P, the process. I, you know what, I, it probably won't happen for a while, but I, it wouldn't surprise me if in 
15, 20 years' time, someone wins the Nobel Prize in chemistry and starts waxing lyrical about the time that Nature Chemistry decided to bounce their paper <laughs> uh, without sending it to peer review. The, the thing about publishing and peer review and just science in general is it's done by people. And we all know there are many problems with people. It, it's all subjective. And what one person thinks is a great paper, another person might think is obvious or dull or something else and it and no one can really predict what is or what isn't going to win a Nobel Prize and I certainly don't sit there evaluating a paper thinking ah oh, am I going to be embarrassed in 15 years time if, mm. if this wins a Nobel Prize right no so you accept like that to, to some degree there's an element of it being a crapshoot and or that's just a the nature of the beast uh, it's not even an element it's it's almost entirely a crapshoot. I mean, we, as editors at the journal I work on, we, we try and be as consistent as possible in the decisions that we make. Every manuscript is evaluated on its own merits. And we're just looking for things that are cool, interesting, things that we think might be important to the chemistry community, things that other people might go on and use. But we don't really know for sure. We're just making our best guess and I mean, I've I've rejected papers that have ended up in very good journals. I mean, just between me and you guys, don't tell Jake, but I've seen papers I've rejected end up in science. <laughs> but but what does that mean? Does that mean that I've made a mistake? Does it mean science has made a mistake? I, it doesn't mean either of those things. Different people can look at the same thing and come to different conclusions. And entirely reasonable people can disagree. Okay. So so that being said, uh, because science is a very human process, I guess what steps does nature chemistry take to try to limit bias in, I'm sure you've seen all the metrics about how women and, and men have different citation levels or different acceptance rates or, you know, are treated differently in uh, sometimes in the peer review process. So how does nature chemistry address uh, stuff like that? That's a very good question. There, I mean, there, there clearly, are, clearly are biases and there clearly are differences. In terms of how we evaluate papers, we clearly know who the authors of every paper are. We don't, well, we haven't yet instituted any kind of triple blind process because you could argue that maybe we could evaluate papers without seeing author names at the top of the paper. Now, that has certain just practical challenges associated with it because you'd have to unblind the paper before we actually sent it out to review because otherwise we could end up sending someone their own paper to peer review. <laughs> I imagine that, well, and, and obviously that does happen sometimes, but that happens usually at, well, it certainly hasn't happened at Nature Chemistry, but you occasionally see tales on Twitter where someone is quite gleefully reporting that they got sent their own paper to review because the editor didn't notice who'd written the paper. <laughs> so obviously we know who the authors are. I mean, all I can say is, is we evaluate the work based on the work in the paper. I don't care where the author is from, what language they speak, where they were born. It's about the work that's in the paper in front of us. That's how we make our decisions. Sure. Now, in terms of the referees, we do offer the option to authors of making their paper blind so that the referees don't know who the authors are. 
you could argue that, well, a good referee for that paper would probably be able to figure out who the authors are. But having said that, they shouldn't even try. They shouldn't, again, they shouldn't be evaluating who has written the paper. They should be evaluating the work in the paper. But again, of course, we're all human and we all have biases, whether they are conscious ones or subconscious ones. The, the people who work on the journal, we've seen many, many referee reports. And I think the vast majority of the referee reports that I have seen over the past, I don't know, 13 years or so, are fairly genuine and well not fairly they are genuine and occasionally you do see one where you wonder what the motives behind the criticism is but they normally stand out like a sore thumb they, they normally really do stick out we get three referees on pretty much every paper and the thing that we do that all nature journals do is we share the referee reports back with all of the referees and then referees can then send us feedback on the other reports if they wish to. So it's useful for us to get a sense of what the other referees might think of the other reports, if there's a red flag. But you, you can't ever eliminate bias. I think if you're aware of your biases, that's one thing and you can try and mitigate them. But we're human. So we, we do what we can to be as consistent as possible in our decisions and as fair well, it's not even fair to everyone. We're, we're fair to the work that's in the paper, because, again, it, it doesn't matter who you are. It's about the work in the manuscript. That's what is being evaluated when we decide whether to publish a paper or not. And that sure. is the only thing that should matter. And so I guess on a, on a related note, I mean, um, people have been experimenting with you know double blinded review and people are sometimes signing their reviews. Um, like there's a lot of people kind of experimenting with kind of new new ideas in, in peer review and post-publication review. What what kinds of things do you think in the future are going to stick and what do you think isn't really going to withstand the, the test of time? Oh, that is, that is a very good question. For all its flaws that we have at the moment, the, the way we currently do peer review, which is basically single blind where the referees know who the authors are, but the authors don't know who the referees are, I, for all its flaws, I think it's probably the best system we have. In terms of naming referees or people signing their reports, that, that's obviously more popular in some fields than others. I do wonder about people signing their reports and whether, I don't know, does that open them up to retaliation, retribution? I don't know. If, if you're a, a young assistant professor try, starting off trying to establish yourself and you get a paper to review from big established professor in your field and let's say you have some genuine concerns about that paper and you you write a critical but again constructive report on that paper and then are you going to sign your name to that or are you in an ideal world i think you would the problem is is we don't live in an ideal world and maybe you're worried about who is reviewing your next grant proposal, who is going to be writing you tenure letters. And so there's a there's some asymmetry there in the, the dynamic. I think if you're big, established, well-known professor who's fairly secure, sure, maybe you'll sign all of your referee reports. But I wonder if it, it works that way for everyone. Yeah. Um, does, does Nature Springer, do they allow that? Yes, it is allowed uh, for you to sign your referee reports. Some of the Nature journals 
do publish what's called a peer review file. They do publish the referee reports. I think that's Nature Communications, although I believe they don't publish the names with the referee reports. And conversely, some journals such as Nature itself, or Nature Nature as we call it, um, <laughs> they do they do publish the referee names on some of the papers they publish if the authors decide to choose that option. And when when you're asked to review a paper at Nature, if the authors have, have agreed that the referee names can be published, I think as a referee, you're aware that your name will be published should the paper be accepted. So then you would make your decision to review or not based on whether you would ultimately want your name published, I believe. Um, or maybe, I, I, I'm not sure actually, maybe, maybe the referees have to opt into. There's various levels of opt-in that I'm not sure about because we, we don't actually offer that at Nature Chemistry yet. But there's a problem with that as well, publishing the names of referees on Nature Papers. Well, I say problem. Something to consider with that is obviously there's a survivor bias yeah. because you're only publishing referee names of the papers that have made it into the journal mm. because of of course you can't publish the names of the referees for the papers that nature didn't publish because you you can't make it known that a particular paper was rejected at nature and this person was a referee who wrote this report that rejected it so it's there are a lot of initiatives and the nature journals in particular are, are trying all these different peer review initiatives different ones at different journals to be honest i don't know what will stick there are some folks looking at ways to recognize or reward people who do more more than their fair share of work when it comes to reviewing are there any mechanisms that you think can encourage a good behavior and be like you know, good volume so that people review things when they're sent to them and do it in on time or i think there needs to be a better reward slash recognition system than there is now because it's it is essentially free labor it's part of i think some people see it as giving back to the community you have your papers refereed therefore you referee other people's papers but obviously as a as a publisher we rely upon the goodwill of academics to review manuscripts and we don't pay for that yeah and that biases a lot of the work to uh, to those people who are naturally thoughtful and have that the, the good heart to, to absolutely well if if you don't want to be bugged to referee things all the time the, the only thing you have to do is agree to review something and then keep saying yes yes that report will come and never send it in do that to, <laughs> do that two or three times and then then we'll stop asking you so the the one i absolutely think people should get some kind of recognition and reward for reviewing especially if they review a lot the problem is is if you if you make it become a financial transaction does that set the bar to a certain level of quality if if you say okay you review for us we'll give you a hundred bucks for your report what about if that report is two lines long or what about if that report comes in after six weeks instead of two weeks and then also, does that put pressure on people to accept a review when maybe they're not in the right area or they're not quite the expert you need? But hey, there's a hundred bucks at stake. I, I wonder if that's the right incentive. Now, I don't know what the right incentive is. The other thing I do know is if if you prob if you did start giving financial recompense for providing reviews, I'm pretty sure publishers would just find a way to pass that on to 
readers and authors anyway. So does that solve the problem? I don't know. I don't yeah. know. Can but, you think of any like non-financial ways to uh, reward or recognize uh, outstanding reviewers? Well, the, the ones that people use at the moment, I know, I think Wiley do. They, they'll send you a certificate, which is fine, but a certificate isn't going to pay the rent. <laughs> um, but it's, but it's, 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 uh, it's a recognition of, of that type of service. And I know people put these on their CVs and will make a note of this in any kind of sort of promotion applications that, hey, I, I'm a good citizen. I do my, my bit of reviewing. I guess some, some places maybe do they give you a discount on open access fees? Uh, yes, might do that. I think I think ACS does some kind of thing with that. So that maybe that seems, I mean that would seem to me to be a quite plausible thing to do. That I I do obviously say all of this from the standpoint of because um, I think Alex you called me a publisher at the start, which we're going to have words about later. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> so I I very much come from the side of the business that is editorial um i don't get involved in any kind of decisions to do with money none of the decisions i make at the journal are to do with how many copies of the journal we're going to sell how much we are going to charge for site licenses or subscriptions that's nothing to do with me every, every decision on whether we accept a paper or not is purely based on do we think this paper would be good for the journal and i quite like that the fact that i am completely decoupled from financial considerations in that respect right. so what if i if i say now that oh it would be great to uh, give people a discount on open access fees um that's not me speaking on behalf of springer nature and that's me not looking at the economics of that and whether that would actually work or not but i mean at first blush it, it seems like if you're doing something for a journal you should maybe get something back related right. to that journal i mean would you find that like you know say you send someone someone's really reluctant to review a nature chemistry article and then you know somewhere down the line they submit an article to nature chemistry would you find that you might be less eager or willing to expedite your your review or the review process for that person who hasn't done any reviewing uh themselves does that happen is that is that something that would come into play at all the, the answer is no, because, I mean, kind of as I alluded to earlier, the most important thing for us is what's in the paper and whether we think what's in the paper is going to be of interest and importance to our audience. And is it the sort of thing we want to publish in Nature Chemistry? Stu, I'll have to say that it's really a relief to hear that, uh, despite the fact that CJ and I have never reviewed for you, that you really judged our zero-step synthesis of strychnine purely based on its its merits. <laughs> <laughs> And, and and that's why it ended up as a blog post. <laughs> Sick burn. <laughs> <laughs> you you are known for sometimes playing a game on Twitter called <laughs> Cronin or Kanye. Other way uh, around. Other way around, Alex. Sorry, Kanye or Cronin, and where you put up, you know, a blind quote from either famed musician Kanye West or famed chemist Lee Cronin. And so I'm going to try a game with you today called Kanye or Conan, where um, I'm going to give you a quote. Yep. Um, it's either going to come from Kanye West or someone with the name Conan. And you have to guess which one it is. Okay. Are you ready? Uh, uh, as, as I will ever be. Okay. Here, here's the first one. Nothing in life is promised except death. 
Kanye or or Conan? Conan. No, that's actually Kanye West. Oh. Yeah. Oh Round two. Valor pleases you, Crom, so grant me one request. Grant me revenge. And if you do not listen, then the hell with you. Kanye or or I keep trying to say Cronin. <laughs> Kanye or Conan? Conan. Yes, that's Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Round three. <laughs> I feel like I'm too busy writing history to read it. Kanye oh, or that's Conan? that's got to be Kanye. That's Kanye. Round four. I think you got two points so far. If life gives you lemons, make some kind of fruity juice. Ooh, that's not Kanye. Yeah, that's Conan O'Brien. <laughs> All right, um, so that's uh, that's three points for you, Stu. Round five. five. There's nothing more deceptive than an obvious fact. Kanye or Conan? Kanye. That's actually Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Oh. <laughs> Are you sure? Um, I I googled it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, it sounds like something Kanye would say. <laughs> All right, round six. One of my biggest Achilles heels has been my ego. And if I, Kanye West, can remove my ego, I think there's hope for everyone. Is is this a trick? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, are, are you... Ah. Uh, go on then, Kanye. Yeah, it, it is Kanye. <laughs> well, I, I wasn't sure whether you were, it was some kind of reverse psychology thing and someone else... Had, <laughs> been pretending to be him you know i think there actually is like a sir arthur conan doyle quote um that's a, oh wait no that's the one that we just read there's nothing more deceptive than an obvious fact <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> all right <laughs> moving on would you believe in what you believe in if you were the only one who believed it Kanye or conan. <laughs> read that one again it sounds like a song lyric would you believe in what you believe in if you were the only one who believed it. Not Kanye. It's Kanye. Oh. Man. <laughs> this, All is, right. this is tough. This is it tough. Is, it is tough. Like, now you know how it feels. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. And, and the last one here. I'm not unclear, yet people still choose to misunderstand me. That's Lee Cronin. <laughs> 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 yeah you got that right <laughs> we uh i thought i'd uh i'd fool you with a little trick question there oh i don't know i've given something like oh, nine or ten talks this year at various universities and almost without exception it always gets brought up kanye or cronin um when i'm talking to someone at the universities i'm visiting it it seems to have gone down quite well <laughs> yeah i mean as as it should <laughs> I mean, for a while, I was like taking Kanye quotes and like repurposing them as Kemye West, I think, or and just some chemistry situation that Kanye could be talking about. And, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, both of them provide some pretty good uh, Twitter fodder or Twitter discussion fodder. The, the problem is, is Kanye doesn't tweet enough and maybe Lee tweets too much or both. <laughs> You know, we're, we're approaching the end of 2019. Do you have a favorite paper of the year, um, nature chemistry or, or otherwise? It was, I, I was dreading this question because it actually uh, means I need to think about this and, and do, some, do some, some hard thinking. It's just because of my background and the type of chemistry I did. 
I quite, I think it was a Kenitami paper, and I think it ended. It was in Science. I think it ended up in where I saw it. It was they made a trefoil knot and a catenane, but it was entirely a hydrocarbon-based one. So they basically tied some kind of polyacene into a knot and. They did the same with a catenane. It's just like with most catenanes and rotaxanes and knots, they're not going to be useful for anything to anyone. But it's the fact you can do that. So that that was quite cool. So that I think it might have even made the cover of science. I'm not sure. But that was just a cool, cute little paper. I like I like fundamental chemistry. I like just doing things for the sake of doing things when it comes to chemistry. Does that count as a single molecule if it's tied in a knot? <laughs> Is it a sandwich? Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> yes, uh, it's of course it's a single molecule. What else would it be? I I, I don't know. <laughs> you're the uh, you're the expert on these things. Oh, this is the oh if you um so if you have a catenane. Right, and it's like tied in a knot. Is that one molecule or two molecules? Or what would you say? I'd say it's one molecule if it's tied up and you can't like take it apart without breaking a bond. Well, that's, that's pretty much the definition of a molecule. So, yeah, if something can fall apart without breaking a bond, then it's a complex of some description. And it can have various stabilities. It could be very stable and you have to heat it really high for something to come apart. Or maybe you just have to look at it the wrong way and it falls apart. That's a complex. If you actually have to break a bond to turn it from one thing into something else, then that's a molecule. So... A catenane is a molecule. Even if it has two interlocked components, it's not two separate interlocked molecules. All right. And since we're on this topic, my sister actually had a question. If you have a glass of gin and you have two <laughs> ice cubes in the glass of gin, is that a sandwich? <laughs> of course. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> I wonder how long it would be before we get to gin. Yeah, well, we have to get to gin. I've spoken with Stu a number of times, but I've never heard him talk about gin. I'd <laughs> love to hear about gin. So how did this start? So the, the way I got into gin, this is going to sound really bizarre, is through walking. We, we started walking a lot as a family. And I, I just remember one day um, we walked past this sort of out in the country. We live out in the countryside. We walked past this tree or bush or whatever it was, and it had little small purple berries on it. And I said to my wife, what are they? And she wasn't 100% sure, but she said, oh, I think they're slows. I'm like, oh, I've heard of slows. People make slow gin. And I think at that point, I didn't have any concept of what slow gin really was. So I'm like, oh, if those are slows, maybe we should pick some and make some slow gin. So, of course, then I got out the magic Google machine and started doing some searches. And so started making my own slow gin. And it's obviously I've not been in a lab for years, which is probably a good thing for most people involved. But it, it's it's how I do chemistry now. It's it's my practical chemistry. It doesn't involve any distillation. It doesn't involve any fancy equipment. You literally pick these berries, you throw them in some alcohol, you add a bit of sugar and you leave it for a year. Then you filter it and try not to drink it all at once. Mm-hmm. And But you can experiment because you can experiment with how long you leave it. You can experiment with the amount of sugar you add and you can experiment with what the alcohol is. And you can choose gin, but you can also have whiskey or brandy. And it's through that route that I then kind of got into gin. The, the big the big secret behind all of this, and you, you may not believe this, is I don't 
actually drink that much and I don't actually drink that often. I mean, I I do like to have a drink occasionally, but I've probably got 40 or 50 bottles of gin, each one of which maybe has like one or two shots out of it. So I'm, I see myself more as a gin collector than a gin <laughs> consumer, if that makes sense. I've got to say, like, that, that really resonates with me that I find the more time I spend in lab, uh, the less I enjoy cooking and vice versa. When, when I'm, I've been out of the lab for a while, yeah, cooking really does kind of scratch an itch. So I, I like discovering new gins. I like trying new gins. But and, and actually, the thing I really got into last year were Negronis. I don't know if you're a fan of this wonderful Italian cocktail, a Negroni. It was an acquired taste for me, but now I'm, uh, I am a Negroni fan. It's, uh, it, this, this is all uh, the fault of an academic at a chemistry professor at Leeds called Michaela Hardy. And I went to visit Leeds last year, I think it was. It was, I think, the evening before my talk, and we were out for dinner with a, a few other academics from there. And she was like, well, I know you like gin. What do you think of Negronis? And I'm like, what's a Negroni? I'm 40-something years old, and I'd never even come across a Negroni before. And she's like, aha, try one of these. And four Negronis later, I was hooked. <laughs> <laughs> and, and maybe slightly drunk. And so ever since then, it's kind of my go-to cocktail, and it helps that... It has gin in it. And what you can also make is you can make a slow Negroni or a slow Groni or something. So you can make a Negroni <laughs> with slow gin. So it's perfect. I, I guess I was pretty surprised when I found out that the definition of gin is actually pretty loose. Like all it needs is some sort of grain alcohol, some percentage of juniper berries, and then any herb or any other thing, right? So so Bruce Gibb actually wrote a thesis article about this in Nature Chemistry. It depends on what sort of gin it is so for a london dry gin there are very strict requirements on what the ingredients can be and so it and if you call it because there are some that aren't even distilled there are some basically you just take some some kind of neutral spirit and stir it with a bunch of herbs and juniper berries and it almost certainly tastes foul but it's probably sold off very cheaply so it really does depend but I mean, having said that, some of the some of the gins I have, I have some very nice Mediterranean gins that they're really not very junipery. There's a there's a very nice, I think it's a Spanish gin called Gin Mare, which has a very strong rosemary overtone. There are some, there are obviously some that are very citrusy, some that are very junipery. There's there's all sorts, and this is so you can call something gin, but they can taste completely different. And and another one is barrel aged gin. So if you like whiskey. And you're not such a fan of gin, try a barrel aged gin because it's sort of halfway between whiskey and gin. Yeah, that, I've tried one before and it it tastes great on its own, and that surprised me for gin. But maybe I've, you know, at that point I'd only had you know beef eater. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a there's a there's a book on gin that I read a while back, which uh, which I actually sent to Matt Hartings after I'd finished it because he was he was interested to learn more about gin I think and. In there, there was an introduction written by some some distiller, some master distiller who'd spent years distilling gin. And he said one of the most disappointing things about how people consume gin is it's one of these spirits where people actually rarely taste the gin on its own. Because the vast majority of people just pour some gin into a glass and then immediately add ice cubes and tonic water and lemon. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Mm -hmm. So... Whenever I try a new gin, the 
the first thing I do is like you try the gin on its own without anything, without ice, just on its own at room temperature. Then put some ice in it. So just try it when it's chilled down a little bit and it's got a little bit of water in it. And then put the tonic water in and then put some garnish in it. So it, what this, the point this distiller was making is that for a spirit that is consumed in massive quantities, very few people actually bother to taste the gin. If you ever do find yourself in, in Edmonton, Alberta, you should go to there's this place called I think it's like Ampersand 12 or Ampersand something. And they have like an extraordinary gin collection. Maybe you'll have to have uh, Jillian Buryak take you out uh, <laughs> for for some gin. Um, it's, it's a really good place. So th- the last time I was in Canada, I, I came home with two bottles of gin. It seems to be a thing now. I go places and people ply me with gin and give me bottles of gin, which is, which is again, not something I certainly expect far from it. But I, I guess I now have this reputation of liking gin and it's sort of the, oh, you like gins, do you? Here you go. Here, here's a bottle. See, CJ and I have a, a the reputation of you know sandwiches, and I feel like no. know, if, if we were to travel places and people <laughs> just plied us with sandwiches, um, I don't think it would be as exciting as gin. So I think no, you know you should count your blessings. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, but but there are things that you would be plied with that one of you would think is a sandwich and the other one wouldn't, presumably. Is a bottle of gin a sandwich, CJ? Uh, no. <laughs> right, see, like th- this game isn't as exciting with you because, like, the answer is no to everything. <laughs> we'll just have to agree to disagree here. <laughs> is is every one of these episodes going to include some kind of discussion of what is and what is not a sandwich? Only if it's good. <laughs> like, only if the discussion's good. Otherwise, it's going to make the uh, maybe one of our off week uh, bagel bites. <laughs> <laughs> Stu, thank you for uh, for sharing your Saturday afternoon with us. Really appreciate you coming on to uh, the the show. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thanks again to Stu Cantrell for sharing his thoughts and his time today. You can follow him on Twitter at Stuart Cantrell. Thanks again to Brendan Burkett for designing our logo. You can follow him at Chemscrapes, and to Caroline Landau for coining our podcast title. Please follow us on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you choose. Don't forget to rate and review our podcast, and feel free to leave us your feedback on Twitter at Periodic Bagel. This episode was brought to you by the letter P and the number 31. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time. Okay, just hit me up for whatever additional stuff you may need. Anything? Well, <laughs> there, there are limits, and I, got I may have to. Script. <laughs> <laughs> Am I allowed to swear? <laughs>